0: Hey, let's uh, prepare our hearts today. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You again for loving us, for sending Your Son uh, to die in our place, that we would uh, be made right with You, that our sins could be atoned for, forgiven, and that we could really Worship together, knowing that all we have is Christ, and if we have Him, we have everything. Please open our hearts, give us the wisdom to understand Your Word, to apply it correctly, to live our lives for Your glory, to live them in truth, to live them without hypocrisy. Lord, always with a view to see You honored. Um, So may this... Time in your word be a blessing to us, and may it be a way that we can worship you better. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we are in the book of 2nd Peter. So, I invite you to open up your Bibles to it. 2nd Peter chapter 1, we will complete our study of chapter 1 this morning. Our passage. We'll begin at verse 16 and I will be reading through verse 21 just so we have the entire context. 2 Peter chapter 1 For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received glory or honor and glory from the Father from God the Father such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, But men moved by, the Holy Spirit spoke from God. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. So the theme we are covering, and the one that we have been covering for the past, I think, three uh, Lord's Days is this. You look on your bulletin. The title is, The Witness and the Word Proclaiming the Power of Christ's Return. So within this passage... Uh, Peter actually covers many different topics, but uh, the the whole canvas against which he is uh, professing this has to do with a denial amongst some of the false teachers in this community that are uh, calling into question the return of Christ. That is, the return of Christ uh, in judgment. And so what Peter does in order to quell any fears of Uh, among the people as to whether or not they have somehow understood uh, the words of the apostles and the words of Christ incorrectly or risk denying the very words themselves, Peter corrects their thinking, calls attention to the necessity of relying on revealed Scripture, relying on revealed truth. Of course, there's a lesson for all of us today as it regards this. We hold in our hands the very Word of God, the inerrant, infallible Scriptures. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as is similar to Peter's audience, we face many challenges, especially in the context of denying Scripture, denying the Word of God, denying its truth, denying its sufficiency, denying its inspiration. You'll notice that when it comes to the revelation of Scripture, and even the Gospel especially, there is all-out denial. right? Denial from those who do not believe the truth. Calling into question the claims that Scripture is made. And among these claims denied, I would say perhaps preeminent, is the claim of judgment. But there is a sure and certain, and I would say terrifying judgment, that awaits those who remain in unbelief. And the letter of 2 Peter, especially the passages that we are exploring, really serve the purpose of of describing what it is to encounter those denials. What do we do when we are faced with a very real denial of Christ's power and justice and rule? And in 2 Peter, we have... Really an event that is on the horizon. One that, as Jesus says, this generation will see. And as we repeat it quite often, as time has gone on, uh, false teachers have, ha- have infiltrated their midst and have denied this appearing of Christ in judgment. Things are going to go on as they always have, they say. There is no judgment coming, they say. Look at how much time has passed, they say. And so regardless of what they have been taught by the apostles, regardless of the words of Christ himself, they deny that. And so what Peter does in assisting these churches is draw their attention to two particular things. And these two things are tied together. It is the witness and the word. And so beginning in verse 16, as you recall, Peter draws their attention to the fact that he was with the Lord himself on the holy mountain during the transfiguration as described in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very clearly, he said, I was there. We didn't make this up. We didn't invent it. These are not cleverly devised tales like the one that these naysayers are are cultivating in your midst. I am telling the truth. We find that in Paul quite a bit. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. He's reasserting the fact that what he is giving them is from God. It is true. It is trustworthy and also needs to be listened to. But Peter says, I was there. I was an eyewitness of His majesty. That's the witness in question. They heard the voice from heaven from God the Father. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. And He can recount that with profound clarity. He says in verse 18 of 2 Peter 1, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So that's the witness, that's the eyewitness. And you could factor into that, the very witness of God Himself toward His Son speaking from heaven. That this is a preview of Christ showing up in glory to execute judgment. He's saying, We had this preview, so you can rest assured this is going to come. This is an inevitability. And so then we turn to this second, the second one. That is the word itself, how the word proclaims the power of Christ's return. And that begins in verse 19. And we uncovered three primary points last Lord's Day regarding what the Word does. And we find that its its blessing has a lasting effect. The blessing and benefits of the Word are not simply for the, the first century churches listening to this message. It is a timeless blessing. It is a timeless grace for the people of God. But listen to what the Word does. Starting in verse 19, we read the fact that we have the prophetic Word made more sure. And so the first thing is that the the Word is settled in its truth. The Word can be accepted with certainty. That when we hear it, we know that we are hearing God Himself speak. And Peter's eyewitness lends itself to that. It is confirmed. And so the witness of Scripture is further galvanized in our own hearts. But then there's a second thing, is that the Word itself is centered on its work. The Word isn't isn't inert. It does a powerful work. Notice what Peter says. He says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. No matter how we characterize this world, and often we characterize it as a dark place, right? A dark place. A godless place. As if there's no hope and no future. And yet we have the lamp. We have the the bright shining light of Scripture. Of the word of prophecy. A sure word. And so we can conclude that the light that it gives off is sure as well. Light in a dark place that exposes, that illumines, that gives life to those who hear it. So while the word is here, it does its work. and we take part in this work as well. We find that we are, as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to shine this lamp, to, to put it in a high place, so that all see it, so that all hear the truth, so that dark places are dark no longer. So that they become enlightened places too. A place where Christ is honored and loved and worshipped and trusted. So the Scripture does its work, continues to do so today. And thirdly, the Word is certain of its victory. What kind of victory are we talking about? Well, we look at verse 19 again. It says this, We shine the lamp in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So the victory being spoke of here is the victory of God's word in our own lives that Christ is exalted more than he was before. That is to say this morning star that is I believe the Lord Jesus Christ arises in our hearts. But as time goes on and the ministry of the word uh, pervades all of life that we continue to grow in grace so that Christ in our own lives especially in the in the church corporately has preeminence. But there is no mistaking who is Lord and King and Savior in our midst. But there is no mistaking who is in charge, who is running the show. But there is no mistaking the object of our deepest affections. But it is clear who we trust and who we follow and who we proclaim. That is one of many ways that this thing we call victory is expressed in the life of the church. And of course, it's against the backdrop of Christ's death and resurrection that He has already attained victory for us, and so we follow Him in triumphant procession knowing that ultimate victory is sure. And so number four is perhaps the most basic and most straightforward, but it is also one of the most helpful. What else does the Word do? Especially against the backdrop of this context of, calling to mind the truth that we have received in the midst of doubt and and, and, and unbelief and calling into question Christ's coming. But we think about it, what is it that gives our proclamation power? Fundamentally, how do we know that we preach a word not only full of truth, but full of power and authority? The answer is simple. It is Scripture. It is Scripture. Authoritative Scripture that we speak forth. So draw your attention with me to verse 20. This fourth point is that the Word is spoken forth by God. So the Word is settled in its truth, it's centered on its work, it's certain of its victory, and it is spoken forth by God. Again, the words we read and study together are not the words of mere men, but they are the words of Almighty God. So we can break this down really into four pieces. I don't really have a fancy four-point sermon, but just so we understand how this, uh, this text breaks down. Uh, the first part is in the initial, the initial part of verse 20. He says, know this first of all. Right? That's the first part. And then he says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's o- own interpretation. So there is a negative statement there. And then he goes on, To make another negative statement in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, right? So there's number three. The fourth statement is a positive one. And he says, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So you can see very clearly that what Peter is addressing here is the origin of Scripture, but also the interpretation of Scripture. So we know where Scripture comes from, but we also have some instruction as to how we are to handle it. But before Peter even gets started, look at verse 20 again. He says, but know this, but know this first of all. Right? So he's drawing our attention. Know this first of all. And of course, this brings up this continual theme within the book of Second Peter, right? Know knowledge, true knowledge. that it is important for the Christian to know. Knowledge is important. Knowledge is, is fundamental to the Christian life. We can't follow a God whom we do not know. We can't grow in a grace that is foreign to us. And so Peter, as he establishes many patterns in this book, but preeminent among them is this theme of knowledge. He's, he once again says this. Know this first of all, but this has to be preeminent in our minds when we are, when we are battling unbelief in the midst of the church. When we are counteracting unbelief false teachers and their false doctrine and so this remains fundamental for us this remains a matter of first importance and sometimes we don't think about that do we do we like what what i think or what i know about scripture being applied in in the midst of this spiritual war against unbelief against principalities and powers we have to be confident regarding scripture's origin where who is it coming from who's speaking it forth and Of course, the answer is that it is spoken forth by God himself and so he says this, entering the second part that that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So what we're dealing with here primarily is the written word. No prophecy. Foretelling or forthtelling. I think there's a combination of both. The proclamations, the commands, the truth that Scripture issues, the written word issues, is not a matter of one's own interpretation. So primarily, Peter has the Old Testament writings in mind, but there is also later on in this book in chapter 3, Um, an acknowledgement that there is Scripture still being written, where he acknowledges the writings of Paul to be Scripture. And so I think for us today, we can take uh, take that in combination, that when we read these words, we can understand that yes, Old Testament Scripture as well as New Testament Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. We cannot do with it as we please. And so when it comes down to this, there is, there is some serious debate. It, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing how much debate there is on a passage. that You look at this and you're like, oh, well, okay, I understand this. No, 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 uh, no Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Then you start reading the commentators. And it's amazing some of the things that come up in some of the arguments being made. But I think no matter where you land, all of these things, all of these things fit together. I believe Peter clearly is talking both about our interpretation and understanding of Scripture in addition to the origin of Scripture itself. You get the wrong source of Scripture, you're not going to have a right interpretation of it. Now let me tell you this too. When we talk about Scripture not being a matter of one's own interpretation, Peter isn't saying here not to study. He's not saying not to examine. He's not saying not to scrutinize. This does not alleviate us from some some very... Serious responsibility of studying the word ourselves, of really opening our, our our Bibles and getting into it, asking the Lord for wisdom and clarity, and coming to our own conclusions. Right? He's not. He's not decrying serious diligence. Quite the opposite. We would say that studying Scripture is very important. Right? I think Jeremy this mo- in this morning's. Uh, Sunday school lesson referenced the, 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 the men on the road to Emmaus. They were, they were talking to Jesus. They, they, they seemed sad. They seemed disheartened. And then they told Jesus about Jesus. And what did Jesus say? How foolish you are, right? How slow of heart, right? Why are you being unbelieving? Didn't, didn't the Scripture foretell all of this? He held them responsible to know what the Scripture said and also to believe it. So diligent study is, is so fundamental to the Christian life. But on the other hand, we, cannot also, we, we understand that Peter is saying that Scripture does not come from the natural man either. So when someone says, oh, that's just your interpretation of the Bible, and, and in that they're trying to discredit you, what they're probably trying to do is just justify their own lifestyle. So interpretation matters immensely. We want to understand God's Word rightly. We want to understand it the way he intended it to be understood. See, Peter's detractors are doing the same thing here. And I think it provides a grave warning for us. But these false teachers are employing two very common tactics of the enemy. The first is denial, just an outright denial. Right? Just as the devil told Eve in the garden, You will not surely die. The false teachers accuse Peter of cleverly devised tales and ask where is the promise of His coming. Christ surely will not come in judgment is what they are saying. And then of course, the second one is distortion. You take the truth, you hear it. You hear it taught even. You hear it interpreted clearly and accurately. And then it is twisted to its own ends and for personal gain. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says this regarding the letters of Paul. And also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which, listen to this, the untaught and the unstable distort as do also as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. So you notice that misinterpretation can destroy you. God has given us His Word, but it must be paid attention to. It must be studied. He must give us wisdom for us to understand it correctly, and so we know at least on a base level that interpretation matters. We are not free to take God's word and take it, at, rip it from its context, and interpret it to, to fit our own des, our own desires. Right? Rightly dividing the truth, the word of truth matters. 2 Timothy two fifteen says, right? Cutting it straight. Right, a workman is not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So there is a right way to understand Scripture and there's a wrong way to understand it. Think about it. Distortion can lead to further denial or denial can lead to distortion. Either way, their presence can be devastating to the faith and unity of the church. And this is precisely what Peter's readers are enduring and I think in a very real way. We endure the same thing. The church is on constant alert to correct the misguided and unstable who constantly... Distort the Scriptures. And so this is a call for vigilance. For studying Scripture carefully. For studying it, believing it, and applying it rightly. And so, in the interest of a little side lesson here, how do we know that we have the right interpretation? How do we respond to that arbitrary claim, well, you have your interpretation you have mine. Everyone has their own interpretation. Who are we to say that one interpretation is right and another interpretation is wrong? It's a very important question, and it has an answer. But if the fact is, if we can interpret Scripture any way we want, we have basically relegated it to just another, as being another book that really has no solid meaning, right? Everything becomes relative. Everything becomes subjective, And so it prevails upon the church to say, this is not a subjective word of God. We cannot handle it any way we want to. We have to handle it as God has instructed us. So we have a little time here to to give it a little bit of attention. So if you are proclaiming Christ or in a discussion with someone else about Him, especially an unbeliever... That's the one thing they will say to you as an attempt to dismiss Scripture is that there are so many interpretations. How do you know that you have the right one? right? And, of course, we understand certain Scriptures are difficult. The, the Scripture we just uh, related from chapter 3, verse 16, yeah, sometimes Paul writes difficult things to understand that does not give you grounds to then twist it to your own liking. That does not that, that, that is not a call to simply, oh, just roll over, give up, don't do any diligent study. How do we know we have the right one, even though some Scriptures are hard? Well, we give our attention to Scripture itself, rather than twisting it. We see what Scripture has to say about Scripture. Um, we don't, have a, we don't have time this morning to really take an exhaustive look at all the principles of interpretation. That'd be a useful side study someday. But when it comes to starting points, right? How do, we, how do we start when it comes to our interpretation of Scripture? And I would say that our starting point is understanding that what Scripture has spoken is true. And let me tell you this. Apart from... Apart from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, you will never come to this conclusion. But that is the starting point. It must be the starting point of the church, is that what Scripture says is true, and that God has spoken it. Therefore, it must be true. That's our starting point. That's our starting point. It has to be. But then going on, we find further instruction. I like how our confession actually uh, describes this. Listen to this, uh, regarding Scripture. "...all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned..." So pause there. So you could say, this is the hard text. I'm not very smart. doesn't matter. God can give you understanding in a due use of ordinary means, that is, opening up your Bible and studying, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Going on, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture, don't miss this, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. That is to say, God's best interpreter is God. God can explain Himself. Moving on, and therefore... When there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, that is to say, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, there's one true interpretation, though there may be many applications. It must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. But that is why the apostolic testimony is so important. They are able to interpret the fullness of the Old Testament through the work of Christ. so key. Let me read that end sentence again, but that is why the apostolic testimony is so important. They are able to interpret the fullness of the Old Testament through the work of Christ. What does he mean there? Is it simply this: the work of Christ brings it all together. All that the Old Testament taught the person and work of Christ brings it all together, pointing ultimately to him. But that is our starting point. and I believe that the Lord is going to hold us responsible for how we use His Word, especially as it regards to those who teach. Right? Do not, do not desire many of you to be teachers, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. There should be a, at least a level of holy fear when it comes to teaching God's Word. We don't want to misrepresent what God has said. And so we can conclude that just as Peter's eyewitness account of Christ is not a cleverly devised tale, neither is Scripture itself. See, what Peter is doing, I think, here is exposing these false prophets' willful misinterpretation of what the apostles were teaching. I think in this verse, and again, there's a lot of debate about it, but much has been made of this. Oh, this these two words, own interpretation. And I think the Greek for interpretation is best understood as interpretation. What is the sense that you are giving of a particular Scripture? So when we say, my interpretation is this, we're saying, God's Word says this, and here is the meaning. The interpretation is the meaning applied to the words of Scripture. And they are tied very closely together. Yes, we agree that God has spoken, but what does God mean when He has spoken thus? Thus. And so what Peter is doing here, by saying that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, he is, he is calling out these false prophets and telling them they have no right to take prophetic utterances and twist them to somehow unsay what God has said. So you see how they're tied together. If you, if you misinterpret something, you end up denying the very Word itself. So if Jesus says, yes, in this generation, I am going to return in devastating judgment. And then you take that statement that the apostles are teaching and saying, oh, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. He meant something else. By default, you're basically denying the very prophecy itself. So in that sense, the interpretation of the prophecy and the prophecy itself are linked. And so Peter here calls out these false teachers as to what they are doing. He says, keep that in mind. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one one's own interpretation. Even those who are not false teachers still applies to them. We are all held responsible as to how we interpret. We are we we are we are not permitted to go and, and and give our own, you say, private assessment of a text that really stands against God's intended message through that text or through that word of prophecy. And this is why comparing Scripture with Scripture is so utterly important. It prevents us from isolating a verse or two and binding the consciences of men with cords that God Himself did not tie. And so what Peter is telling these churches is that they must not only pay attention to the Word of God, but also how it has been interpreted by the apostles. And comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's why teaching the apostles' doctrine is so vital to the health of the church. It's an ongoing importance. As, because we are passing down their particular interpretation regarding all of God's work through Christ. See, as the Holy Spirit empowered them and gave them knowledge, they connected the dots. They were able to connect with the prophet, what the prophets foretold regarding Christ's redemptive work, including salvation and judgment. You know, for example... If you, if, you would turn to, if you turn to Acts 2, right? So when Peter really starts preaching, you're like, where did this guy come from? He's preaching powerfully. But where is Peter preaching from? He's preaching from the Old Testament. As the Scripture says, right? He goes back to several Old Testament Scriptures to make his point. So he's not only teaching, he is telling the crowds what those particular Old Testament passages meant in light of them being realized in Jesus Christ he is doing interpretive work as he is teaching he's not merely quoting he is giving the sense and this is common this is common throughout scripture that those who proclaim the word of god gave the meaning as well they did not want god to be misrepresented his word was precious and worthy to be represented clearly and truthfully and accurately you know we, we face that challenge we face so many challenges when it comes to understanding scripture right we, we so many things get in the way especially when it comes to difficult passages and so, so and so suddenly we find ourselves with this challenge of reading in other things that that try to stand in the place of scripture's clarity and authority right sometimes we rely on our emotions scripture says this but i don't really i'm not really feeling it i don't feel that way this seems mean right this seems narrow minded it just feels off as if suddenly our emotions are, are authoritative, that they, they've usurped the very authority of Scripture. You know, we also use our education. There's another example, right? I've learned a bunch of things, and now, even though Scripture said, said, says this, I have come to know better through my college classes and my erudite professors, and they must know better. So you do it in many, in many different ways, but especially through our feelings and the things we we think we've learned, things that pass as so-called knowledge. But these things are dangerous because they seek to usurp the preeminence of God's Word in our life and in our faith. But Peter's words ring clear. Old Testament prophecies are not a matter of personal interpretation, but as Schreiner concludes, have been authoritatively interpreted by the apostles. And so as the apostles teach, they give the sense. And so even the interpretation had authoritative weight to it, and these false teachers come along and say, no, that's not what that means. And so Peter here is adding that corrective so that they will be on guard, and so so must we be on guard. We're reminded from 2 Timothy. Love this verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So these verses kind of operate as the keystone New Testament verses on uh, biblical inspiration. But Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed, right? It's inspired. Really, it's breathed out. That's Scripture's source is God and is sufficient for all kinds of things. Everything related to life and faith and worship. And so Peter ties this together. You look at verse 21. So we're dealing with interpretation at first, but then he goes to the origin of Scripture itself. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So if you don't understand Scripture's origin as being God's Word, you will not honor it in interpreting it correctly. So that's where the, sort of where the interpretation of Scripture and the origin of Scripture marry. Because both matter, both are inextricably related. So Peter ties it up with verse 21. For, so here's the, here's the grounds of what he just said, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So just as scripture's interpretation is not a matter of of one's own human interpretation so is scripture not made it's not sourced in an act of human will but men moved by the holy spirit spoke from god so here we have the third part of this verse and and yet another negative statement that that Peter that Peter makes for no prophecy this is all of scripture so no prophecy no, nothing written in in god's word is of man. It all is sourced in God Himself. So here's where he explains this origin of Scripture. When he says no prophecy, he is talking about the written Word, the sure Word as a lamp shining in a dark place. So this goes back to the cleverly devised tales. And if prophecy were an act of human will, then that is all we would have, right? All we would have are subjective sayings of man. Think about that. Since the fall of man, the will of man and the will of God have been at odds. You could say they have been at, violent, they've been at violent odds. We could say that if man could write down God's thoughts, he would not. And if he would, he could not. See, there's a problem that man has. First of all, man is a rebel. So that if he had the ability, if he had the innate wisdom to write down God's thoughts, he would not because God's thoughts repulse him. God's thoughts are offensive. Because God's thoughts, God's Word expose our sin. They expose our rebellion. They call us us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They call us to to repent and trust in Him. Of course, man's never going to want to do that. Man, Man in his flesh is never going to come to that conclusion that what he really needs is a Savior. Man is never going to come to the conclusion that what he really needs is God's grace poured out upon him. Man is never going to come to his own conclusion that He needs forgiveness. That he needs to be reconciled to a holy God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He wouldn't. He does not desire God's thoughts. He does not desire God's Word. And if he would, he could not. Man simply lacks the strength. He lacks the wisdom. He lacks the resources to put to paper what God thinks, and who God is. See, man is no more capable of revealing God's thoughts as he is calling light into existence. See, there's a similar thing going on. Just as God must say, let there be light for light to be, God must also say, let there be life for life to be. And so man finds himself wholly incapable of ever speaking for God apart from God's presence and God's power and God's truth. That is to say that prophecy, the Scriptures, is all of God. It's only from Him. See, all these things should not surprise us regarding man's relationship to God's will. See, Scripture brings light. And what does does the Gospel of John say? That men love darkness more than they love light. Men love the darkness. They crave the darkness. They cling to it as a lover. They love this instead of the light that is burning brightly that could give them hope and eternal life in Christ. And so we find that juxtaposition throughout Scripture. The fact that what God has to say is at odds with what man has to say. I mean, you think about Jesus' own rebuke to Peter. I'm sure Peter could call this to mind while writing this. In Matthew 16.23, and note that this comes just after Peter's confession of Jesus being the Son of the living God, that He is the Christ. But then he takes Jesus aside and said, Surely, Lord, these things will not happen to you, right? You won't be crucified. I I will not have any of this. And then Jesus says this, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now listen to this. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. So so, So Jesus expresses that divide that inherently exists between how God sees things, what God's interests are, and what man's interests are. We see this reacted to even in a harsh way. It's reminded of Acts chapter twelve, verses twenty-one through twenty-two. Remember, King Herod goes out in all of his royal apparel, right? Takes a seat on the rostrum and begin began delivering an address to them. Verse twenty-two says this: The people kept crying out, "The voice of God and not a man." Even people, even people in that kind of kind of uh, fervor. Recognize the difference. There's the voice of man. There's a mere man speaking. And then there's God speaking. Right? But tragically, Herod <laughs> failed to give God the glory and so was eaten by worms and died. What, a, what an ignominious death that is. But there's a difference. There's something about God's Word that sets him apart from what man conjures up. Man is merely that. He is only a conjurer. But he cannot conjure up the divine. He cannot conjure up the eternal. right? He cannot conjure up the power of God. He can only conjure up that which is worldly and temporary and fleshly. Listen to Romans 2.29. We see this divide expressed very beautifully. But He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God, right? So, a couple differences at least made in that in that single verse: the inward you, the outward you, circumcision by man or circumcision of the heart, right? By the Spirit, the letter. Praise not from men, but from God. You got you have a, a bunch of differences being drawn, and they're at odds with each other. Find this all over the place, especially when it comes to Revelation. In Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, when Paul is introducing himself, he says, Paul, an apostle, and then immediately writes this, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So what was Paul being accused of? Something something not unsimilar to Peter, right? That Paul really wasn't an apostle, but he kind of called himself. He was a self-appointed apostle, but but someone sent from man, and he says, no, I'm not sent from man, I'm sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father, the resurrected Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. And we see that made very clear, but there is that separation. And so what the Word of God does is join those two things and through through some miracle, through some act of God, even though... Man's will is opposed in its natural sense to God's will. God uses man to make His will known. This should amaze us that God could take flesh and speak through them and transform them so that we can think God's thoughts but also speak His Word. And there's a warning that comes along with this because those who claim to speak for God and yet misrepresent Him are in a very perilous position. There's are strong warnings. Listen to Jeremiah 14. But, O Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is the exact same thing that Peter is, is going through. It's the exact same thing. He is rebuffing these prophets, speaking in the midst of a rebellious people. They say, oh no! God's not going to judge you. Things will go on. You will have peace. Life will be as it should. It will be a lasting peace in this place. Right. And this is what Peter's detractors are saying. No, there will be peace. There will be an abundance. Everything will be as it was. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy life. Judgment isn't on the horizon, and then it sweeps them all away. Now listen, back to Jeremiah 14, listen to verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. This is why we we, we take careful attention to what is going on in our own time. You, and this is usually, so it, it comes from other contexts, but it's, you, you typically see it uh, most clearly expressed in the health and wealth gospel, right? Health, wealth, prosperity, right? What, what so often accompanies these preachers is that they heard a word from the Lord that somehow culminates in a transaction in which you voluntarily give them your money, and then they become exceedingly rich and they're telling you, well, you can be this way too. Oops, <laughs> you just gave them all your money. See, there's nothing new under the sun. These same false visions, these same divinations, and they're futile, and they're deceptive. You know, they're de- They deceive, and, and they are themselves deceived. But it's the same old thing. These promises of abundance these promises of peace these promises of life going your way life on your terms right your best life now become a better you and on and on and these promises will continue until the gospel completely stamps them out but this is abhorrent to god listen to what he says in verse 15 same 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 passage Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name although it was not I who sent them yet they keep saying yet they keep saying there will be no sword or famine in this land by sword and famine those prophets shall meet their end the very thing that you're denying false prophets is the thing that's going to kill you so there's the warning of judgment they will meet their end The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them, neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. So again, woe to those who listen to people like this, but also even more, woe to those who prophesy falsely. Woe to stumbling blocks, but woe to, the, woe to them through whom those stumbling blocks come. It's a grave warning. And the application, I think, is clear. If you claim to speak for God, make sure God has said. Right. Make sure God has sent you. And make sure you are speaking His words and not your own. In Jeremiah, we see another warning from chapter 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own, what's this, imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Same warning. Now consider this one. Ezekiel 13, 1-3. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Right. So you look at this, the word inspiration, the Hebrew word used here is for the word heart. It's an expansion of the word lev, which simply means heart. So what are these prophets doing that society so treasures today? Just get up there and speak from your... Yeah! We love that. We find that so inspiring. Oh, I don't remember what he said, but he spoke from the heart. He spoke with such passion. He just made me want to be a better person or he just made me want to to get up and and do something. Well, did he speak from God? Did he say, thus saith the Lord and truly represent God in truth? Because here they are saying, listen to the word of the Lord. But what are they doing? Oh, they're just speaking from their heart. And what do we know about the heart and unbelief? From Jeremiah 79. "It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So beware when a person <laughs> speaks from their own heart and not from the heart of God. This is such a huge challenge, and yet it's everywhere. But we still have the sure word, and we can't forget that. Listen how Gene Green summarizes these examples. He says, in such context, the the human revelation is secondary, inferior, and even unreliable against the divine, which is primary, useful, and reliable. So what does that tell us? The divine Word is all you need. It's all you need. It must be preeminent. We find it's useful and it's reliable. It's trustworthy. And so here we are. It behooves the church to not to not misrepresent god you must represent him in truth so that's why paul says but men moved by the spirit spoke for god and so of course peter clarifies in concrete terms here the source and origin of the word that is god himself and peter is giving an old truth not a new one but the giving of the written that in the giving of the written word it was god the holy spirit who moved men he spoke through the prophets he breathed out the written word See, all of this is from God. And so it's a strong reminder for us that the church, both Jew and Gentile, is beholden to the truth of Scripture. That these remain the words of the living God and are authoritative. Think about even in the Old Testament, the human writers refer to their writings as the Word of God about 3,800 times. There's There's no uncertainty in them. Hear the Word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. And even if the prophets didn't understand in every detail what they were writing or preaching, they knew one thing with certainty is that it came from God. Herman Hoyt clarifies concerning this verse. This means that prophecy did not, did not only originate with man, but also even the function of communicating it did not originate in his own will. If left to himself, the prophet would not have conveyed the message. It was therefore nece- it was necessary... Therefore for God to bring the prophetic message to men through the prophet the holy spirit accomplishing the task by bearing him by bearing him along that's what it means that god moved by the, that men moved by the holy spirit spoke for god they wrote they wrote what they wrote but they were writing god's words they were carried along by him they depended upon him for the words that they wrote just as Moses was given what to speak, just as Samuel was spoken through by the Spirit of the Lord, just as even Jesus spoke through the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 61, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives." That's speaking through the Holy Spirit. And so, as we come to the New Testament era, Acts 1.16 Peter says, brethren, the Spirit had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, which became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So they understood then that Scripture came from God. And so we are told by the writer of Hebrews, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. This all turns our attention toward God as the origin of Scripture. I saw the light back there, wrapping it up. Uh, to understand this, because we, we, have, we have both divine participation and human participation. So how were they moved by the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit bore them along, kind of as the wind does a, the sail of a ship. So listen to what B.B. Warfield says. He says, "...the men who spoke from God are here declared, therefore, to have been taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by His power to the goal of His choosing." The things which they spoke under this operation of the Spirit were therefore His things, not theirs. Very important, especially when the accusation comes, that these are just the words of men. No, they are the words of God written down by men. So he says this, And that is the reason which is assigned by the prophetic word is so sure. Though spoken through the instrumentality of men, it is by virtue of the fact that these men spoke as born by the Holy Spirit, as or an immediately divine Word And so therefore, that kind of wipes out the assertion that this is simply writings from men. These were men that were dependent upon the Holy Spirit, that God imposed Himself upon them in such a manner that the words penned by the author and what he was writing were not his own words, but ultimately God's. And, in, and even though this is so The writers retained their writing styles, their personalities, their vocabularies, even acknowledged certain things in their own culture. And yet, it was God directing them. And you could say that the authors wrote these things not even knowing the full scope at times what they were writing. But they did know that it was from God. And so, we see that the Spirit carrying men demonstrates God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. That He could use mortal flesh to proclaim His will without that word being perverted or incomplete. It also shows His grace, that He would use men, ordinary men to make His gracious will known. That He would use men to write such words that would draw men in saving faith to Himself. So even in inspiration, we see God's magnificent grace at work. And again, we see God's power at work in carrying these men to write what they did. Because... He ensured that His Word would be preserved. So in all these things, we see divine activity. So what are we left with in closing? This is is the main point of why we even go through a passage like this with this kind of depth. We want to trust the Scriptures. If you don't trust the Scriptures, you do not have a starting point. That's why it would have done no good for the rich man to go back and tell his brothers, of what he was undergoing, right? Please let me go to my brothers and warn them. And what, is, what, is, what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. That is, they have the Word of God. And that is enough. So what are we left with? We are left with a Scripture that is inspired, breathed out by God, from God Himself. Secondly, we have a Scripture that is, that is infallible, that is not liable to fail. fail. It will never fail to do its work. It will never fail to be right and true. Thirdly, we have scriptures that are clear. What God has spoken, He has spoken clearly so that it can be understood. That is, we have no excuse to ignore or disobey God's word. Fourthly, we have scriptures that are authoritative. The word of God is not optional. We are called to obey it. You know, I'm saved by grace. Do I have to do what God says? Yes. Scriptures are authoritative, and we even rejoice in that. Scriptures are sufficient. That is, Scripture is enough. We do not have to look outside Scripture for for wisdom and truth. Scripture is enough. It tells us all we need for faith and life. And finally, Scriptures are trustworthy. What God has written, friends, you can trust. And that that is what I want you to do. I want you to look at the Scriptures and say, I believe this. God has spoken and I believe it. God has spoken and that settles it. I trust in His Word, and I, and I believe that as I read it, and as I study it, understand it, and obey it, my life will be transformed, and I will be made like Jesus Himself. You can trust that. God Himself has spoken, and He has spoken through His Spirit. So let's uh, entrust that together in a word of prayer as we close this morning. Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness to us. We thank You for Your Scriptures. So much we could go over regarding uh, the transmission and preservation of it. But ultimately, Lord, we we look at Your Word and we can believe it. We can can look at it and and say, this is is the Word of God. God has spoken. And and Lord, we as Your people want to respond to it. We want to respond to it in truth. We want to respond to it in faith. And we want to respond to it in love. We we, we delight in Your Word. We, We love it and we want to hear it. Um, we understand that with this comes a great responsibility of, of, of interpreting it correctly as well, that, that you had an intent when your Word was proclaimed and written down. And Lord, we also have your, your Scripture as a guide that we can compare one thing with another to, to have clarity and to have, and to have the truth and to be able to apply that wisdom to, to walk with you. And so, Lord, help us to trust Your Word. Help us to see it as as sufficient. Help us to avoid looking for, for other resources of, of wisdom and encouragement that, are, that fall outside of what Your Word clearly teaches us. Lord, may we be a church that is full of the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, that we truly delight in You, and that there is no question as to who reigns supreme in our midst. So with that, Lord, we commit all these things to you by faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen.